This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club and this is your show. How's 10 goals, 6 points, a huge swing in goal difference and a 3-point lead at the top of the table with just 2 games left as a tonic for that disappointment in Madrid. Two emphatic wins have put City in the driving seat for this season's title and there's been a bit of exciting news off the pitch this week too. Not only were Newcastle and Wolves comfortably dispatched, but it was announced that City have agreed, in principle, to bring Erling Haaland to the Etihad this summer. How will he fit in? What will City's front line look like next season? How exciting is it to have one of the hottest talents in world football joining the club? All of that is coming up on this week's Blue Moon podcast and there's more. We're going to take a look at how City are talked about after Pep Guardiola seemed unhappy with some of the coverage of his team. He feels that much of the country is backing Liverpool in the title race. Is that true? We'll examine his words and get the thoughts of our panel. Plus, this week also marks 10 years since Sergio Aguero scored that goal against QPR on the final day in 2012 to secure the title. So we'll reflect on that a decade on. And then there's also the match with West Ham to come too. I'm Sam Roscoe and with me from statcity.co.uk is Adam Carter. Hello, mate. Hi, okay. Yeah, very good, thank you. And joining us as well from the Manchester Evening News, we've got Simon Bajkowski. Simon, how are you doing, mate? Yes, very well, thanks, Sam. You are right. Yeah, not too bad. Well... It's been a bit of a whirlwind week, really, hasn't it? You know, two absolutely brilliant wins and a uh, pretty big signing off the pitch. How are you feeling after this week, Adam? <laughs> what a difference a week makes um, from the turmoil of the Champions League exit to two swashbuckling victories, a superstar signing, goal difference galore. Uh, yeah, riding high as, as, as we speak. You mentioned the goal difference there and they've absolutely been banging them in for fun. Simon, do you reckon City are, are trying to make sure that this title does not come down to goal difference and that's not a factor anymore, you know, for for City? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for, for a few weeks now, Pep Guardiola has been thinking about goal difference and talking about goal difference. Um, you know, he, he's not won the amount of trophies that he's won um, by leaving things to chance. So if there's anything that he can control, he will. And... Uh, Certainly, you look at the last the last few weeks, and they've scored a hell of a lot of goals, and it's uh, yeah, no, no coincidence. Absolutely. I mean, going into that Newcastle game, I know I was still a little bit shell shocked. It was a you know an absolute disaster of a defeat in Madrid, but the manner in which the the team came back because there was a lot of pressure going into that game wasn't there there was a lot of people saying oh can they do it can they bounce back the all the eyes and of the world were on city and all the build up was about how the season could absolutely capitulate in front of us now but what a way to to bounce back from from that disaster adam yeah, there was certainly pressure going into the game. And I think what was different this time was that usually when there's pressure, and we talked recently on the podcast about big pressure games that the Etihad over the years and how there's been a nervousness around the stadium and the fans and how that's transcended onto the pitch and almost affected the players, if you will. But there was none of that uh, against Newcastle at the weekend. It was literally, let's get the job done. The crowd were on side. Pep mentioned that in his comments afterwards. Um, you know, we, we set the tone from the off. We 
got to work and we we got the job done. Previously, it's been a bit sluggish, a bit nervous. I'm thinking of the Leicester game of a few years ago when it was a similar situation in that we had to win a league game close to the business end of the season. And I think the fans were superb and that and kind of there was no nervousness from the fans. Um, we, it was just come on, let's get the job done. I think we were buoyed by the fact that Liverpool had dropped points 24 hours previous to Spurs, uh, and I think we just it was just a professional performance and that kind of eased any tension or any nerves from the from the get go really yeah i think um rightly so mentioning that that result for spurs against liverpool they've now gone unbeaten against liverpool this season and uh, they've done the double over city so i suppose you know we sh- we should thank them for that result really because i know it certainly put the wind back in my sails going into that mm. that newcastle game do you think it had much of an effect on the team simon yeah i think so uh, you know it <laughs> It, it 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 was obviously crushing to lose that Real Madrid game, um, and the players were given a bit of time to to take to themselves before they came back in on Saturday. And you know it was a good session on Saturday, but the the biggest help they were given to to make them refocus for the league title was seeing Liverpool drop points because it, something that has uh, you know been slightly forgotten is that the title race has always been in City's hands, but seeing Liverpool drop those points really gave them the the advantage to uh, to turn the screw both with points and with goal difference. Now, one man has had a huge hand in the uh, two games, Newcastle and Wolves. We will come on to King Kevin De Bruyne shortly, but one thing I do want to mention before that, looking at the defence, are you worried about how vulnerable things are with, with the injuries? What, what was the... Uh, the scope after after Wolves with the injury situation, Simon? Yeah, so it doesn't look very good for uh, Amerit Laporte and possibly Fernandinho. Uh, Laporte's looked worse, to be honest, but then Fernandinho's was a, a muscle injury. It looked like maybe his hamstring and, you know, at, at 37, that's uh, not ideal. So City already uh, without Ruben Diaz, John Stones and Kyle Walker and quite possibly without their fourth and what would Fernandinho be fifth fifth choice centre back so uh, Nathan Ake if fit uh, will probably play and I mean Rodri filled in there I'd to, to be honest I'd, I'd do a bit what he did at Wolves and go like 4-2-4 with Rodri and, and Gundogan shielding because I think Rodri's better shielding the defence than he is as an actual centre back but to do that you're going to need to play someone like Luke and Bette from the academy at centre back and I'm not sure uh, Guardiola would do that because he's not really shown any inclination to do it. Well, one, one reassuring thought on that is that Phil Foden's available at centre-back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we've got to come on to him, uh, King Kevin De Bruyne. Some stats for you about his recent performances. Kevin De Bruyne has the third quickest hat-trick from the start of a Premier League game. Only Dzeko, Aguero and Jesus before him have scored four for City in the Premier League. He's only the second right-footed player to score a hat-trick of left-footed goals away from home in, the, in a Premier League game. The first was Harry Kane. And De Bruyne's XG for the evening against Wolves was 0.83 and he scored four. I mean, I don't know if that says more about Kevin De Bruyne or about XG, but <laughs> just how good was his performance across the two games, Adam? 
Well, yeah, I just want to throw another one in there that De Bruyne is now the joint leading goal scorer at Molyneux this season, <laughs> and that includes Wolves players as well. So another tidbit to throw at you there. It's just a superb evening's work. And obviously, if you link that with the, the um, Newcastle game and his performance there, his drive up the pitch, I think I've seen a lot of outlets discussing, was this like almost payback for a subpar performance in Madrid? But I don't think... De Bruyne beats himself up like that. He, kn- he knows he's got this in the locker. And if his Madrid performance was subpar, this is a perfect way to kind of, uh, I refer to it as him, Yaya Torre, Torre in his way across the finish line, like Yaya did for us in 2011-12 mm-hmm. season. I think, you know, what what a way to bounce back if, it, if we are calling his Madrid performance a poor performance. He literally answered those critics within two games, two amazing performances, world-class performances. And I do, I dare say that when he's finished with his legacy at City, he will end it as the best player to pull on the, to have pulled on the blue shirt. Definitely. I love that comparison to, to Yaya Toure, because I think you're absolutely <laughs> spot on there. He, he has been dragging City to the title, certainly in these past two performances. But, uh, you know, if, if that Yaya Toure season is anything to go by, then uh, should be expecting a, a wonderful marauding solo goal against Aston Villa on the last day of the season, uh, fingers crossed. One thing that I did want to bring up about Kevin De Bruyne, another stat that just highlights how integral he has been for Manchester City towards, uh, I hate it, it's cliche, but in, in the business end of the season and towards the end of the season, you know, right in the thick of the title race, his last five goals, he was the first goal scorer against Burnley. He was the first goal scorer against Atletico Madrid. The first goal scorer against Liverpool. The first goal scorer against Real Madrid. And you guessed it, the first goal scorer against Wolves as well. So he's been absolutely integral to Manchester City towards this end of the season. Um, Adam touched on it then, but there were some critics for De Bruyne's performance in that away leg in the semi-final of the Champions League against Real Madrid. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, I suppose when you go off the past two performances, um, that that game he had in Madrid wasn't up to his standards. But do you think he was, um, you know, bouncing back from that? Could that... Be- those two performances being his personal reaction to the game in Madrid, Simon? Um, I mean, you know, there is that sort of angry Kev mode where he just <laughs> goes into sort of this unplayable, like, FIFA cheat code. I, um, I always remember the game against Spurs. Yeah. I can't remember what season it was, but it he was, got fouled, didn't he? And then he, he just... He was 18, yeah. Deli Ali stamped on his ankle. Yeah, and then he went on a mad one and scored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I kind of think, like, um, as Adam's been saying, it, it, it's kind of doing his performance level for the second half of the season a, a disservice to sort of say, oh, he had a bad game at Madrid and has bounced back because sort of that, the the Madrid game is the anomaly, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pep said after the Wolves game that the, the second half of the season has been beyond perfect for him. And, and I think it has. He, he's... He has shown why he's the best player in the league. And, you know, for me now, having been nowhere in the conversation as late as December, he's he's comfortably City's player of the season. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also a little bit of uh, tongue-in-cheek from Kevin De Bruyne with his celebration. <laughs> Was he uh, foreshadowing 
Erling Haaland there. I mean, he did say to Sky after that it just happened and it it wasn't a reference, but I don't buy that, do you? <laughs> I, well, it, it sums up De Bruyne, doesn't it, that he's he's done it without realising if he has. I love as well, you know, we've all been saying, haven't we, that, that City are crying out to, to sign a striker and then, you know, look what happens. They sign a striker and they <laughs> uh, fire in on all cylinders. <laughs> um, on a serious note, just looking, final look back at, at, the, at both games, um, Newcastle missed a sitter at 0-0. Wolves made it one all straight away. Are they simply the sort of scares you get in football or... Does it underline how switched on City need to be right now? I think City are a, bit, a little bit guilty of switching off just after we've scored because so often this season, once we score the opening goal, we go on and win the game. So it's almost a case of, do we think job done? I like to allude it to that, um, to link it to that meme on Twitter where you go one nil down on FIFA. So the, the character sits up and starts playing properly. I think we sometimes <laughs> need that to start playing. Um, you, you know, it almost shocks me when the other team score and, what to start playing with our ball because we've been that dominant recently. Um, I think if you go back to the Watford game a, a couple of weeks ago, they scored to make it 2-1, I think, at the time. And it's just like, well, we are still in a game at the other end of the pitch as well. Uh, Newcastle had that chance at 0-0 that could have changed it. Wolves come straight back and score again last night. And it just it ju- just goes to show we do still need to be switched on. But luckily, we've had enough to then just go on and absolutely take the game away from our opponents. Because in all three instances I've used there, it could have easily gone the other way. But we've had that professional approach and that business, uh, business-like approach just to absolutely take the, the game out of reach. So we do need to be switched on. I think we're guilty of switching off just in those little moments when we've, we may have taken the lead or certainly look like we've got the job done so early on. Yeah, I think as well it's um, it's also a good reminder, isn't it, that you know this, this title race is by no means over, even though you know now there are only two games to go and and they still have to be on it. They have to be on the toes, and they can't let anything anything slip, can they, Simon? No, no, they can't. Um, yeah, I, I do think the um, the defensive lapses in recent games are a sort of knock on effect of not having any defenders. Um, I kind of think the the team's been told to go and go and outscore the opposition, and, and Newcastle and Wolves. It was sort of notable how how aggressive um, City were pushing for. For as many goals as they could get, so I do think there was there was an element of that. But um, you know, at the same time, they've still got the the leanest defense in the league. Um, so I, you know, there's there's plenty still going for that defense, even though they have had a few uh, few lapses of late. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it, it's it's all well and good for me. Let the opposition score, but if we put five past them, then happy days, I suppose. <laughs> This week has put into focus how Manchester City are talked about. With more twists in the title race and with the signing of one of the most exciting players of his generation, more on that later in the show, by the way, fans have been talking about coverage of the club. Even the manager's been having his say. So we put David Mooney on the case to examine exactly what's been said. It was a rather routine win over Newcastle on Sunday, which most of us expected wouldn't generate too many headlines. But then, after the game, 
Pep Guardiola said this to be in sport. Uh, one week ago, nobody even been in front. Everyone in this country support Liverpool, the media and everyone. So, of course, because Liverpool has an incredible history behind in Europe competitions and not in Premier Leagues in the because won one in 30 years, but uh, but uh, it's not problem at all. So. Mm. The situation is what it is. Later in the interview, he was asked if he really thinks the nation is backing Liverpool. Liverpool, alongside the United, is the most important teams I've done in all history in terms of titles, legacies, history. But we are, since the last 10, 11, 12 years, being there. I know we are sometimes uncomfortable, but I don't care. <laughs> if the people want more win Liverpool than us, it's not the issue, it's normal. So today, before the start of the game, the people cheering and supporting us, I think, more than ever in one home game because they know that uh, even being out for the Champions League, we can rely on this on these players and the support was amazing. He didn't really answer the question, but he did reinforce his feelings that City are viewed and judged differently than others. And then after that interview with B in Sports, this was his answer to the first question in the post-match press conference. It was posed by James Ducker of The Telegraph, who'd simply asked if Guardiola was pleased with the reaction after the defeat in Madrid. Did you have any doubts? Uh, yeah. Too many today. You're a Liverpool fan, come on. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, James. <laughs> Guardiola then gave a serious answer, but that wasn't what would be focused on. Then, of course, the comments were put to Jurgen Klopp. I live in Liverpool, so far, yes, here a lot of people want us to win the league, that's true. But even here, it's probably only 50%. I have no idea if the whole country is supporting us, That I don't know that. Um, uh, it's not the feeling I get, actually, when we go to other places and play there. It's actually the opposite, but um, yeah, maybe he knows more about that. This was only a few weeks after some felt there wasn't enough animosity between the managers and the teams for this to be a rivalry. The Athletic's Adam Crafton was on BBC Radio 5 Live's Monday Night Club this week. It's kind of what I've been craving from this rivalry for the last few months. You know, the football between the two, the two of them is unbelievable. But you just wanted that little bit of needle between the managers to come through. I think it just adds a real layer of narrative and maybe that makes me sort of a little bit sort of tabloid and basic in, in what I want from, from my football rivalries. Perhaps both Guardiola and Klopp were just saying what they felt, or perhaps both were having a little dig. Have a listen to this from the Liverpool manager explaining how the heat of the moment can affect comments that managers make. After a game, we are obviously... So we are massively influenced by the game, by the situation, stuff like this. So I said, and I, would I say it again? No. But I said after the game, yeah, they play like they play and are still only fifth. Yeah. So, and it felt good in that moment, but anyway, wrong. But it was just my feeling. He went further, looking at the situation with Guardiola and City. I don't know exactly in which situation Pep was when he then, after getting out of, getting knocked out of the Champions League, that's obviously already difficult enough to, to take. But then, of course, Liverpool made it to the final. Yeah. Uh, then you have these kind of things, yeah, but they played Villarreal and we played Real and all these kind of things and, um, and then you say what you say. And he's right on top of that. I was right with fifth place and, and Tottenham still that, and, and he was right, we won the Premier League only once. Ooh, 
On the face of it, both managers are being fair, but when you drill down into what they're saying, perhaps they're both having a little pop at the other. Have a listen to these two short bits again, back to back. Liverpool has an incredible history behind in Europe competitions, in, not in Premier Leagues, in the, because we won one in 30 years. Getting knocked out of the Champions League, that's obviously already difficult enough to, to take, but then of course Liverpool made it to the final. Eh? Maybe though, we're all reading too much into it. After all, Guardiola wasn't really criticising Liverpool, it was more a comment on media coverage. Ex-City defender Micah Richards was also on the Monday Night Club on BBC Five Live this week. We all know that Liverpool and Man United will get the most figures, whether that's broadcasting, whether that's tabloid, whatever it is, because the two biggest clubs in English football. There is a lot of people, ex-professionals in the media associated with Man United and Liverpool. And when they've won what they won, obviously they're going to have more fans worldwide. That's just the norm. So it might seem that it is a little bit more biased towards them teams. He later said he thinks City don't get the credit they deserve. City are going for their fourth title in five years. And we're talking about them not winning the European Cup. It's Premier League. We're talking about how good they've been. They don't get enough credit. All we're talking about are, oh, they've bought the league. Look at all the big teams, what they have spent. Everyone has spent money for success. All the big teams and a lot of the bigger clubs have had money for a lot longer than City have. City won the league after four years of investment. Four years of investment, they won the league. No one's talking about how good that was. Maybe Guardiola would agree. Have a listen to this from his pre-match press conference ahead of the game with Newcastle last week. You win the title this season, that'll be four, four seasons out of five you won the title, which is quite a fantastic achievement. Quite. Yeah. Just quite. <laughs> it's not awesome. Um, <laughs> Guardiola was clearly joking there, but he does have a point too. The question that was then asked was whether he was frustrated that his achievements in the Premier League aren't given more attention, though the manager also said he understood why people questioned his record in the Champions League. The press coverage of City compared to others has been a talking point for fans for years. With Guardiola also taking aim at it this week and with criticism on social media of, among other things, the reporting of the finances surrounding a deal to bring Erling Haaland to City, it's all been brought back into focus. One thing is for certain though, it's a debate that isn't going away anytime soon. And then it stops. I'm Clive Tilsley. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, Barmy Night, Barcelona, all that. Yeah, that Clive Tilsley. Um, you're listening to the Blue Moon podcast. Enjoy. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon podcast. So, guys, what did you make of Guardiola's comments about the press coverage? I want to put this to Simon first. You don't. You want to put it to Adam. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, well, come on. You, you know, you've been there. You've seen him. Yeah. You've been. You've been in the room with him. It's like an audio. You know, I've been fortunate enough in a past life to, um, you know, work. Uh, that's been involved. You know, I've, I've worked as a journalist and I've been in the room with Pep and done the press conferences. And it is a little bit like yeah. an audience with the Pope, isn't it? At times. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, and there is the sense that sometimes managers say things that they know aren't true. Sometimes they say things unknowingly that aren't true. Um, you know, Guardiola is someone who sometimes says things just for effect. And part of this media thing is, you know, is it a siege mentality? And 
Fergie was applauded for this. And yeah, yeah it's quite you know, Mourinho esque, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And you know, one of the greatest tricks Guardiola has ever pulled is you know telling people he, he's no good in press conferences <laughs> because he knows what he's doing all of the. It is pretty much you know ninety five percent performance. Um, almost like, so, almost like how he, uh, you know, I can, I have, you've just thrown an image in my head of him in, you know, behind the scenes before he goes into a press conference, he's got a tactics <laughs> board out and he's got you all yeah. on the board in <laughs> where you sat. Oh, there's Simon from the MEN there, right? We're going to play it this way with him. Uh, yeah, quite meticulous I, I in, mean, in everything I mean, he does. You, you joke. I'm not sure you're that far off the truth. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I. On, on Twitter, I called him out and said he was he was wrong for that, um, for saying that all media and everyone wants to um, wants Liverpool to win the league. I mean, I you know, I, I it is a feeling that some people have, and and I get it. And you know, my my main beef with it really was that you know it treated the media as one homogenous mass and. We we are not, you know. I don't speak for all of the media, um, and I wouldn't expect anyone else in the media to speak for me. Um, but also, you know, I try whenever possible to remember not to generalise City fans because you know there are some some journalists out there who um, unintentionally or very deliberately and provocatively um, sort of count the actions of a few city fans as reflective of the whole fan base um and that is as as wrong so you know i thought guardiola was wrong to say all because all suggests there's no reason there's no room for debate in his head you can't argue the good and bad if someone thinks that it's all bad and i think that you know i think that it sh- that we should have there should be room to say yeah that's not fair that's not fair mm-hmm. but if you're coming from a starting point of all of it is not fair then I think that kind of delegitimizes what points there are to be made. Adam, what have you made of of everything this week? Yeah, there's a few things I want to say about this, to be honest. I think what his point is, or certainly when he's saying the whole of the... I think there's swathes of the media that do want Liverpool to win everything and to sweep everything aside in their path. Not all the media, that must said i mean you've got people like sam lee and simon and i'm not just saying this because he's on the podcast who aren't <laughs> city fans yet seem to go above and beyond to get the inside track in a non-sensationalized way for a city audience and i think they're really good at doing that uh, i'm genuinely not just saying that because we're here today um so it definitely isn't all the media but most of the media it makes a better story to say that liverpool are going to win the quadruple and correct me if i'm wrong but Liverpool have never actually had the Premier League solely in their own hands at any point in the season or certainly not in the majority of the season like we have and I just think they loved the fact that they could call it this quadruple chase and it's actually never been on truly without our say so so I think that's where the annoyance has come from certainly from City fans and I think from Pep Um, I do wonder why he's chosen now to go on this offensive I'd much rather he waited until the end of the season when we've actually got trophies in our hand to then go on the, the offensive and I just I think it's more the online based media outlets that are hyping this Liverpool hype train up more than written publications and certainly not fans of other clubs. I think he was just on the, some kind of form in the siege mentality to what end I don't know. But um, yeah, his, his timing leaves a bit to be desired, but mm. th- there's been some ridiculous um, articles about 
when City were in the quadruple chase, it was a bad thing. Yet now Liverpool are in a quadruple chase and it's the best thing to happen to English football. So you can't have it both ways. It needs to be one or the other. Yeah. Uh, and for the record I, as well, I, I there think... are um, there are some other wonderful uh, contributors to the Blooming podcast that do write uh, brilliant articles for other publications as well. But, but Simon, go on, you was going to say. Yeah, I think I think the issue from my point of view, and I'm obviously biased and, um, you know, coming from my own experiences, but, you know, the majority of my working week is spent with people who cover City regularly. And, you know, all of those people, I think, cover City very well. Um, like, I think of the examples that are thrown out there, they, they're sort of like you columnists at national newspapers who won't be like as inclined to... Um, you know, to know anything about City or th- things like that. You know, I think the more you know, the the more, the better informed your pieces are and hopefully, like, the more understanding you have of the club and everything like that. And, you know, Guardiola always makes a point of, like, you know, if somebody's not been to many press conferences or whatever, he kind of treats them a bit suspiciously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that, you know, like, there are so many people who are writing very good things about City, but that kind of gets lost in the kind of uh sensationalist comment pieces or like the talk the talk sport or sky sports talking heads you know someone sent me like danny murphy saying it or liverpool spend the money the right way and it's like well yeah i mean it's a sorry state of affairs that people have to sort of take these that readers and listeners have to take these filters off and say well why might he be saying that why might patrice Evra? You know, what What insight does Patrice ever have into the Man City dressing room? Absolutely fucking none. Right, ignore him. <laughs> you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have to be doing that. But it's, you know, what I will say is there is loads of good coverage out there. It just doesn't get sort of shouted about as much as the, the, the stuff that isn't good and like the abominations like virus squid and things like that. <laughs> Vampire squid. The, um, the big story this week is that City are to sign Erling Haaland in the summer, in in case you didn't already know. Uh, Many of the reports of the transfer laid out the spending, including the agent's fee, the salary, upfront fee, possible bonuses, etc. Why is that done to City's transfers and and not other deals? Or or is it, Simon? <laughs> um, Sorry, I'm not picking on you. You know, no, no, you're, no, our, you're no. our expert in this field. Yeah, I yeah, I might be revealing trade secrets here, but um <laughs> the sometimes uh we we just don't know. And I would like to point you to the Erling Haaland deal in the sense that, you know, his release clause has been reported wrong for like over a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the day it was just like, Oh yeah, by the way, it's fifty one million not uh, 60 and it was like oh right yeah okay um all i will say is it's just very very difficult to cover transfers because there is more than one truth because everybody involved in the deal is out to look the best so like for instance the when city signed kyle walker in 2017 um you know there were people at city who were adamant they were paying 45 million and there were people close to walker who were adamant it was 50 and mm-hmm. The truth is, it was, as far as I know, the truth is is that it was 45 plus 5, which have been met, so it's 50. But the people close to Walker were keen to portray Walker as like the most expensive England player (laughs) ever. And the people close to City were keen to knock the fee down because they were negotiating a fee for Benjamin Mendy. And Monaco were saying, right, well, Mendy's better than Walker. 
Mm. Lol. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so so everyone's out for themselves. So without physically seeing the contract, it's very hard. I yeah. know that's no excuse for getting it wrong, mm-hmm. but when you are, it's very difficult because you, you can be told contradictory things by different people who you trust, mm-hmm. you know, quite well. Yeah. Um, the, um, the clause is, is just over £50 million. The overall deal is being reported around two hundred and thirteen million. He's on a. It's going to be a five. Is it five year contract? So roughly, that's you know just over forty million a year in total. I, I don't think that's a bad deal at all for one of the hottest talents in world football, the biggest signing the Premier League seen for for a very very long time. Um, I, I can't see the the bad in that, Adam. No, I'm I'm happy with that. I think any club in the world would be happy with that value for money over fa- a five-year period. And I think I've I've seen some reports today from Germany that we've put a hundred and fifty million pound uh, euro buyout for, and that can only be executed after his third year at the club. So, if we're getting almost three times the value that we paid for him in three years' time, and that's if you know we want to sell him and. Well, you know, if if we're in a position where he would want to leave the club, if you you remember, Aguero was touted as us being a stepping stone for a Real Madrid move, and he spent ten years at the club, so or almost ten years at the club. So, I think once uh, Haaland gets in and gets his feet under the table, I'm not quite sure he'll be in such a rush to move on if we can be as successfully as we have been over the past decade. So, certainly value for money for us. I just want you to have a quick listen to this. This is Pep Guardiola speaking to Sky Sports about attitudes towards city spending. For the people, it's just money. Okay. If you want to think about that, think about that. But I know exactly what I'm working here. And I said, okay, don't give me credit. Don't give us credit, but let us give us our self-credit or as a manager, give to my players, to my staff and back to myself. Why do you think there is this snobbery around the money? Because it must have been the same in Spain. Real Madrid and Barcelona must have more money than Espanol. Listen, and, and, and when Liverpool in the 70s or 80s or United was having, who spent more money? What exactly? In the 90s, Manchester? It was Norwich. Norwich spent more money in that period. Or uh, which two teams? So Leicester spent more money than them? No. Spent more money than the other ones. But the money from them is completely different than now. So why is that? I say I'm going to change it. So when, when, when we put the here at hat in our firm, oh, it's overpaid. But now United and Liverpool or whatever is going to pay maybe more, they win more because maybe they deserve because they're working well, because the CEO negotiated well, because whatever happened, there's more because it's for the United States of, of, of America or in other countries or the owners are. So now it's perfect. So that's why it's going to change. It's for a long time, it's not going to change. That is the reality. The only way we can change is do it well on the pitch. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. I love how cool and nonchalant he just comes out with, with it was Norwich. <laughs> <laughs> um, no disrespect to Norwich there, you know, come on, Pep. I'm surprised that's not been a headline. Pep Guardiola. Fuming. Yeah, d- where are you, Pep Guardiola? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised that's not been a headline. Uh, Guardiola disrespects Norwich. Um <laughs> What do you make about what he says there, Simon? Yeah, um, I think he's got a point. Two very um, 
complex arguments um, there, which is um, a the sort of perception of where money comes from and money being good or bad. And you know, I, I do think it's slightly mad how you know Roman Abramovich was only deemed a bad owner once. Uh, once Putin invaded Ukraine and like, you know, the Glazers are still good owners because uh, Donald Trump wasn't president at the time of Russia invading Ukraine. So USA didn't do anything mad. Um, You know, there's, there's a geopolitical issue. And then the other one is kind of like the established order. And I think city get city, get it worse than others um, because they're at the, it's like a double-edged sword for them because, you know, your traditional elite clubs who basically bought their success before City um, view them as outsiders and upstarts and, you know, these sort of dressing in fancy clothes to try and get their attention. And everyone else now sees, like, the side that has been the dominant force in, in English football for for the last 10 years. So, you know, City are both seen as the established order and the ones trying to ruin the established order. So um, they do they do cop for it from from both sides. Um, I just wanted to quickly add in, because I didn't actually answer your question from earlier about uh, money added on for City players and whatever. And yeah, I would just say that uh, it's n- numbers are better when they're either extremely high or extremely low. So, like, there was a thing of why did uh, Sky do Rudiger for free and Haaland for two hundred and fifty million or whatever? And yeah, things things in life are always better if you can get them for free or it costs an arm and a leg in in the simplest of of terms. I'm not saying it's right, but that is how mm-hmm. both media and society happen. Um, just going back to uh, what Pep had to say, Adam. Do you think what he says reflects attitudes towards City? Yeah, I think it's an easy stick to beat us with uh, the money as soon as we do something well. And Pep's been saying this a lot recently. If we do something well, you'll just say it's money. But for me, money doesn't close the opposition players down. Money doesn't put that effort in to run up and down that line for 90 minutes every week. Money doesn't... uh, Well, money. the thing that money does do is put the key... key people in key positions through the whole infrastructure of the club, not just the match day squad, but the best people in the boardroom, the best people uh, in, in making the decisions around analysis and scouting and even catering, physio, sports science. You know, this is a, it's not just a tin pot operation now and people need to get with the times and realise that we've, we've made the right decisions off the pitch that are then replicated on the pitch with our results so far. Um, it, it just makes me laugh that, uh, City money's bad. Any other money's good. You had Liverpool in the 80s with the Littlewoods money. You had United in the 90s with the B Sky B money. Uh, but because it's our money and we're upsetting the established order, as, as we've, we've alluded to, that's when it becomes a bad thing. It's just an easy, lazy argument for people to throw at us because they're not going to be able to have a go at the product on the pitch because we're near perfect uh, week in, week out. So let's just say, oh, it's, it's only money. But I've never seen money chase a ball down in the 90th minute and try and make something happen with it. Building on what Adam said, um, you know, I spoke to Kieran Maguire, who's football finance expert um, recently, and he was sort of contrasting City and United. And he said the biggest um, 
thing for sponsors, the biggest thing that attracts sponsors is success. You know, f- forget your legacy. You can have your brand and you can have all your history. But, you know, that's why there are clauses in contracts with sponsors where sponsors pay more money if their product is pitching next to a trophy. If it's pitching next to the Premier League trophy or the Champions League trophy, City get more money. And, you know, the, the, there are some people out there who want to say that all City money is you know, sponsorship deals are inflated um, despite the fact that Cass absolutely threw that out the out the window. Um, but it, there's just people who cannot accept City, City's success is fair. Yeah. The thing as well for me is that, you know what, you can have all the money in the world, but it's how you spend it. And again, you know, look at Manchester United you know, look at the money that they've spent in the period since Sir Alex Ferguson left. Where has it gotten them? You know, okay, they've got a, a handful, if that, of of um, major trophies compared to, you know, Manchester City. Um, it's just, yeah, this Haaland deal um, really just uh, nails that for me. Like, you know, the, the clause that they're buying him for, is is less than what Manchester United paid for Fred. Um, you know, I think Fred's been a, a good squad player for them, but he's not going to bang in, you know, he's not got the goal record, has he? He's not going to bang in the goals in the Premier League for him. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the one thing as well that just really irks me, to be honest with you. Whenever you, and you see it all the time, the graphics pop up, don't they? It is an easy stick to, to beat City with the amount of money that's been spent. Um, but you know that that's one that's been going around recently. City's uh, total amount spent uh, compared to Liverpool's, and Liverpool have won one Premier League trophy in thirty years. So yeah, you know, um, it's it's about how you spend the money, and City have to be given credit for that. I think I think that's one thing that goes amiss in this whole debate is that all right, one point five billion, whatever you want to put on it. But they've still got to spend it well. And you look at other clubs that have had a similar amount of money. Have they spent it well? No. So, um, so yeah, that's my that's my hat into the uh, the ring there. Um, but anyway, look, we we've spoke far too much about money. We we've spoke far too much about what everybody thinks about City, what everybody thinks about the Haaland deal, how much the Haaland deal is going to cost, how much it's you know going to cost to to pay him for five seasons. Let's actually talk about City signing Erling Haaland and the prospects of him on the field in a blue shirt in the Premier League next season. Adam, what was your reaction to the news that City are going to be signing him? Absolutely buzzing. Ever since the Kane deal fell through last, last summer, we needed to get Haaland. We needed to just literally open the door and say, whatever you want, it's yours. The salary, the bonuses, you know, whatever you want, we'll do it. I, uh, when he when he was pictured with uh, his City kits on as a young lad, I know he's been pictured in Leeds kits and not not Forest kits, but I'm choosing to cling on to the fact <laughs> that he's a City fan uh, and not just a fan of his father's ex-teams. Uh, it would have been gross negligence of running a football club if we hadn't assigned Erling Haaland <laughs> when when his um, release clause was so so obtainable and achievable. I think we're the right fit for him. I think we'll put the foundations in place to make it, him a success. And 
uh, yeah, I'm just absolutely buzzing. I think he's going to hit the ground running and I think we did what we needed to do and credit needs to go to the owners and the people in place that made the deal happen because it was a fantastic bit, bit of business and they're now shouting from the rooftops uh, about how well they did in that deal. So absolutely buzzing. I mean, I'm still beaming like a Cheshire cat, to be honest <laughs> with you. And, and the thing the thing this week post his uh, signing announcement that really got me was, um, and uh, apologies, I can't remember um, where the quotes came from, but I, I saw Paul Dickoff did an interview and um, his quotes were along the lines of, he remembers when he was running round Main Road and there are still people at the club that held Erling Haaland in their arms and, and they still work there now. And, and that for me just sort of really brings it home that actually, you know, this... This was destined to happen. If you want that, that sounds a little bit, um, a little bit Liverpool esque to say that it was our <laughs> destiny to get Erling Haaland. This means more for us to sign him. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry, I'll, I'll tell, let's cut that bit out of the podcast. Um, <laughs> but you know, what I mean, it, it 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 just feels like, um, yeah, it's it's all come together really nice, and I cannot wait to see him next season. Um, one question it does throw up is what's going to happen now with the the rest of the attacking abundance of talent that City have? Do you think, Simon, that someone will, will need to leave from, from those attacking positions, e- even if we've been saying the squad's been a, a little bit short at times this season? Well, I mean, I think City have been an attacker short this season since they sold Ferran Torres. Um, I know he was injured uh, and missed most of the first half of the season. But, you know, City, for a few... I was talking about um, this with someone the other day and it's like FA Cup semi-final is the point in every season where Guardiola is like, right, no, my squad can't cope with this. (laughs) So I need to chuck this game so I can concentrate on on Mm. the rest. Um, so Pellegrini did I it at Chelsea, have... didn't he? Didn't he play? Can you remember that when he played um, yeah. all the? Yeah. Was it like the youth team? He played eight kids. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. Played like not not even the the best kids in the youth team. Just like, <laughs> just yeah. It, it, that was protest, I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, you know Sterling, Jesus, Mares all out of contracts next summer, so decisions will be made on that. Um, you know, Raheem is going to sit down with the club after he's done Nations League duty with England. Um, And, yeah, I mean, you'd think that at least one of those three will be be going. And uh, Haaland is definitely coming in. Julian Alvarez, there is a lot of excitement around him. Sort of, I would say, outside of the club. Um, Inside of the club, not as much, but he's going to get a chance basically in pre-season to see if he's at the level to stay to stay in Guardiola's squad for the season. Uh, he certainly, you know, doesn't look half bad on YouTube. So we'll see how he how he stacks up there. So one, potentially two coming in, you'd expect. One, potentially two going out. But it, it depends on, you know, what deals can get done. Um, but yeah, it, it shouldn't be like, oh, Haaland's coming in. How's he going to fit in? Because um, Guardiola doesn't work like that because he has such small squads. Surely it's just going to be Erling. Here's Kevin. Uh, Kevin, this is Erling. Uh, Erling, get in the box. Kevin, Yeah. find Erling. <laughs> um, 
on that and and about how uh, you know he he's going to fit into the team. There was um, an interesting snippet on on Tuesday. Have a listen to this. It's Leeds manager Jesse Marsh speaking in his press conference. He coached Haaland for a short time at RB Salzburg in 2019, and he was asked about the transfer. Erling Haaland is destined to be one of the best players in the world, um, and it's his quality, but it's also his talent. So. I wish he were coming back home here to Leeds. This is his birthplace. Um, but I understand the decision for him to go to Man City. Um, it'll be interesting. You know, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an explosive player in transition. And Man City often plays a lot in possession. He can play any style of play. But, but certainly, I believe it makes Man City a, one of the, if not the best team in the world, even better. So credit to them for, for getting that done. And, and you know, I, I always wish the best for Erling. He's an incredible uh, human being. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Really interesting there. What what do you think of um, what he had to say there, Simon? Yeah, uh, very interesting. Um, I think it sort of airs publicly what has been said privately about Haaland. There have been these reservations about whether he would suit the Premier League, as, as daft as that sounds, um, just because... A, you will get more sort of transitions, um, basically space to run at people in, in the Bundesliga, which he's had, but also in teams that aren't as possession-based as City. Um, I just kind of think all that goes out the window when you have a, a player as talented as Haaland. He's a phenomenon. Um, so is Guardiola. So is De Bruyne. Like you say, they, they're going to find a way to make it work. And I, and I don't actually think City will need to adapt the play that much. Um, I think, you know, he'll be basically a peak Aguero in that team. Um, but, you know, Guardiola was saying after the Wolves game that they will do absolutely everything they can to help him settle. And they, they won't put responsibility on him to score goals, but they will provide the chances for him to score goals. And you look at that City team and they make so many chances. Mm-hmm. Um, so Haaland's, you know, I think he's just going to fill his boots. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Like, um, I go to the Etihad with my uncles and my cousins and there's quite a few of us. We all sit together and this is no joke. This season, every game that we've all been together, we have been counting throughout the game how many chances that have gone amiss for City that Erling Haaland would score. And... Um, Again, no joke. There, there are five like, per game on average at the minute. Um, it's I don't really buy into this um, concern over if he's going to fit in. Is he going to fit into the Premier League? Because of the amount of times we've seen the ball flashed across the box, and there's no one there at the back post, or there's been an absolutely gorgeous ball floated into the area, and it's just dying for someone in between the two centre halves to uh, to smash it in with their head. Adam, do you have any concerns that that City, you know, may need to adapt their style, or or Haaland may have to adapt his style? No, I, I think it's easy to play coulda, woulda, shoulda, but let's just play that for a second. Um, is it, there's plenty of time? People are saying that um, when we face teams that are camped out in their own box, he's not got the room to really maraud and 
exercise his strength and his power. But there's plenty of times when we flash that ball across the box and it just misses someone. He's the type of player that has a sense for that. And Guardiola loves a, a player that's got a sense as he rubs his fingers together under his nose to say they've got a sense for goal. And Haaland is that player. He will take the chances that Foden and Sterling have been missing recently and he'll put it in the back of the next. I feel bad criticising those two players because we they do take the chances, but that's because we create so many chances. Recently, Sterling just had his 200th goal involvement with whilst at City. And I make it's no word of a lie when I say it should be 400 goals and uh, assists for, for for Sterling because of the good work he does mm, until that final yeah. uh, final bit. And Haaland is that piece in the jigsaw. I think Haaland might have a bit more luck away from home because there is that space because the home team should naturally come out and attack us. But in the games away, he doesn't have that space. I don't think he's just going to go missing and not do it. I don't think he's going to be the typical number nine where he's going to have to play with his back to goal and link people in. He'll do that, I'm sure, and Guardiola will, Guardiola will coach that into him. But there's, there's still going to be six-yard tappings to be done for him, and he does all types of goals like that. So not worried. I'm convinced he'll hit the ground running. No problem whatsoever. Well, Friday this week is the 10th anniversary of Sergio Aguero's title-winning goal against QPR. If you want the exact moment, it'll be about 53 minutes past four on Friday, which will mark a decade to the exact minute that the striker beat Paddy Kenny to give City a 3-2 lead on the final day of the season. We have got a special Blue Moon podcast coming out alongside this week's episode to mark the occasion. And as part of it, we've been speaking to some people who were there and played a small role in the day. Dan Burke spoke to the former Premier League chief executive, Richard Scudamore, to get his memories of one of the top flight's most iconic moments. Where was I? Well, I was there. I was at the Etihad Stadium. Chairman Dave Richards and I had decided to to split because obviously there was a potential for it to be presented at Sunderland to Man United. So we then um, decided, purely on geographical terms, we weren't forecasting likelihood or anything else. He was the chairman, I was the chief exec, and he lived in Sheffield. So on a Sunday afternoon, it was easier for him to go up to Sunderland. I lived down in the Cotswolds near Cheltenham. So it was, much, uh, it was, it was sort of half the trip to get to Manchester. So we just divided divided ourselves up. Two people from Barclays also split up, who they were the sponsor. So I had one, one guy with me. Dave had one guy with him. He and I spoke on the phone. We wished each other good luck and hope, hoped each other was going to be... <laughs> presenting the trophy <laughs> in the sort of magnanimous way in which you do. The memories of the actual game itself were quite quite vivid. Joey Barton having a complete meltdown, literally trying to fight everybody, everybody. <laughs> I think he, he set about kicking Aguero, and then he set about having a fight with Mario Balotelli as he was leaving. It was quite a scene. And against all that backdrop, I think everybody just assumed at some point Man City were going to score and, <laughs> and win the game. And lo and behold, we find they find themselves 2-1 down. So it gets to the 90 minutes, and I was in touch with Dave, and I literally sent him a little message saying, you know, it's like it's yours. As I understand it, at Sunderland, they were all ready to present the trophy. They were literally ready to go. I literally turned to the guy from Barbers and said, oh, well, you know, it wasn't our, <laughs> it wasn't our, uh, our day. And then literally, lo and behold, you know, bang, bang, Jekko. And then, of course, you know, the most famous moment of all, immortalised by Martin Tyler Aguero. And um, we're back in business. And then, of course, we had to get ourselves down pitch side for all the, the madness that was going on. And I have to say, the tunnel area, there was no, I've never seen anything like it. 
I have never seen anything like it. It was pandemonium. And we have at the Premier League sort of a guy um, you know, who, who's, whose job it was, um, uh, whose job it was to actually organise, you know, all that chaos. Um, and he was there, Tom Moore, um, sadly no longer with us, actually, died far too young um, in 2014. But he was there that day trying to organise everybody, you know, in the line. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, it was really quite something. Once the podium is set up, then you've somehow got to try and get this mass of people onto the set in an orderly fashion. So the order is you go non-playing staff first. Those players who haven't played enough to be entitled to a winning a winner's medal go next. And then finally you get the manager and then you get the players, hopefully ending with the captain, Vincent Company, last up you know, to get the medals. And all I know is in the chaos, and bless him, Tom Moore got it as organised as he could and everybody was up on stage. The manager had been up and the players were up and I was counting down and you're counting medals and you're handing over and all of a sudden we're down to five players and only four medals. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows. And I'm looking across from the podium and I'm staring Tom, this guy Tom, in the face. And all of a sudden he twigs and you can see him and he suddenly, and you, can, you can't see it. I don't think there's any TV footage of it. He comes in round behind the set and all of a sudden, another medal appears when there's like four to go. <laughs> another medal appears up on the desk. And so he saved the day, bless him. Because otherwise, we wouldn't have had a medal for Vincent Company, which would have been quite a shock. So there's, there's, you know, it's got a lot of fond memories. A lot of fond memories indeed. Yeah, so there was two trophies, one at the Etihad, one at the Stadium of yeah. Light. Is that right? Because there was some talk at yeah. the time about the trophy being in a helicopter in between the two grounds. Is that is that not true? It's a complete urban urban myth, the idea of a helicopter. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there's always been a sponsor's trophy because it's obviously used for promotional purposes. There's always been the real thing. Um, but they are identical, literally identical. They cost the same. They, they're the same, you know, they're the same work that's gone into them. So they are actually identical. So, no, there was always two. But um, one day, hopefully, they'll need three. And then, then they might need to start bringing helicopters into play. Did you ever have a, a, another final day like that while you were... Chief executive, or was that the most dramatic one? Would you say? Oh no, that's the most dramatic that uh, uh, that I ever had. Of course, you had your other moments. I was there when Arsenal went unbeaten, and they were one nil down to Leicester at half time. That was quite something, being there for that. Um, yeah, and obviously being on the pitch when Leicester did the, yeah, you know, I was there presenting the trophy to Leicester, and that was some day. I mean, you know, it was just against all odds. That was the the, the world's media just went crazy at that uh, at that thing but nothing in sporting terms you always wanted it to go down to the last day you always wanted the, the helicopter myth to be you know to be alive on that final day and it does quite often it's, you know there are you know mathematically you know it's possible on the final day often but no but also it wasn't just it doesn't it wasn't just how late it was and how close it was it was who the two rivals were you know the idea that it was the two manchester teams arguably the biggest rivals there are you know, and literally the way it was done and the idea that one game finished early and they'd done all they had to do and thought they were about to pick it up. It was that, it was just, it was Shakespearean, wasn't it? You know, and it's and it's sort of, you know, and it, you couldn't, you literally couldn't have scripted it. But that is the unscripted drama that is, that is uh, football. It was, when you were chief executive, was handing the, the trophy over, was that one of the most sort of enjoyable duties you would do in that role? Um, yes, although I didn't ever do it. <laughs> I only did the medals. And made sure the trophy was handed over properly. I was kind of really there. I was really there to make sure it all happened in the way it should happen. 
and and down th- to things like five medals, four players, making sure, just making sure the right people got the right things. Because we always had, um, certainly in my time, the sponsor nominated who they wanted to um, to, to hand over the trophy. And in latterly, that they 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 nominated like a community champion. It wasn't like you know the chief exec or anything. You know, down the track, it was it was other people. It was actually Kevin Wall, managing director of Barclays, who was who who was there with me that you know that day. I think, um, yeah, I think so. But it was it was various. Yeah, it, but I didn't actually physically hand it over. And I, I, and again, in, le- in you will notice again, not that you, anybody's a study of these things. We tell people to give the captain the trophy and run. We never really wanted the suits anywhere near. You know, the actual that 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 money shot where. Literally, they lift trophy and the team goes crazy. You really want that from a from a from a televisual and from a photographic point of view to not include certainly include people like me. How iconic was that day in, in the history of the Premier League, in your opinion? And what do you think? What impact do you think it had for the Premier League as a brand around the world? Um, yeah, it was it was an absolutely iconic day. There is no doubt about it. I, you know, I, I wouldn't. I, I, it is up there in the top three, four. You know, of of, of iconic days. You know, I, I, it absolutely is. Whether it's the most, I don't know. Um, the fact that it was Man City's you know first title, the fact it was against the old enemy. Yeah, it was magically iconic. As I say, I, but I would put it up there in the Arsenal's unbeaten. I put it up there with the Leicester's you know, Leicester's champion. I put it up there with, you know, I'm going to upset all of these on this podcast now. I put it up there with Sir Alex's 13th you know, <laughs> title when he, when he came back and did it again as his, as his swan song is literally a sign off. These were all iconic, iconic moments. Um, but, but, but I wouldn't argue with anybody, anybody who said it was the most iconic. I wouldn't argue with that. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. You've made it this far, so don't give up now. That was the Premier League's former Chief Executive Richard Scudamore speaking to Dan Burke. You can hear much more about that day, that goal and that moment from this week's bonus Blue Moon podcast. That'll also be on the usual podcast feeds from Friday morning. Anyway, looking ahead, another big game for Manchester City, another big game in the title race. It is West Ham away on Sunday, a two o'clock kickoff. David on Twitter has been in touch and has asked, what will end first, the season or our supply of senior defenders? It's a great question. What on earth is happening and who on earth is going to play in defence? I think Pep mentioned that if uh, Phil Foden's asked to play there, he'd play there. So I think what we need to do is just outscore the opposition now with uh, with the defensive crisis that we've got. Um, hi, hopefully we'd only need a win from the next two games to secure the title because hopefully goal difference would uh, remain high if we, even if we're only outscoring the rest uh, of the teams by one. Um, so, yeah, I think certainly our supply of senior defenders will end sooner than the season, um, as highlighted with the Fernandinho and Laporte injuries last night. I'm hoping for a miracle cure um, and one of those two will will be available uh, for Sunday at West Ham. But I just think we'll have enough up the other end of the pitch to not need to worry about what's going on at the back. Absolutely ridiculous claim to make, but I'm just hoping we can keep the ball as far away from our goal as possible in those games. Um, Yeah, hopefully uh, we should have... (laughs) 
a, a suitable defence, even if Phil Foden is called upon. Um, <laughs> Steve O'Brien has been in touch on email and he's asked, a few weeks ago, Pep said that we can't afford to drop another point all season. And whilst that is now strictly true, not true, uh, I've been thinking the same thing. But while the match is on, I feel we can't even afford to concede the first goal, given the way we've often dealt under Pep with going behind. Is it just me? Or are you on board with that gut feeling too? Now, Steve sent this in before the Wolves game. Maybe he'll feel a little bit different after these performances or or should he feel more confident in this this team, do you think? Uh, I I think the sort of not being able to respond is is kind of something that was maybe present in the early years under under Guardiola. I think the last two years or so they've They've shown that they can respond to to those kind of setbacks, um, and so yeah, and certainly because of the way the team is set up with uh, with their problems in defence, I think they if they do concede, they will just go even more gunko and say, right, we're going to give the ball to De Bruyne for sixty minutes rather than fifty, <laughs> and uh, and see how see how they get on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I get the nerves, and and Edison kind of. Doesn't especially inspire confidence with how how cool he is under pressure um, and how willing he is to to risk um, having the ball in his own box. But it, it's just, yeah, I, I think I think they're better at it than they were. How are the nerves holding up ahead of this one, Adam? Has this week made you feel better? Yeah, I'm weirdly calm about it all. I was more nervous before the Leeds game a couple of weeks back. Um, I just think the performances we've put in recently have put us in absolute command of our own destiny now. We know what we need to do. We've got the players who have been there and done it. Um, I'm not concerned. Hope this doesn't come back to bite me, but it, if you ask me now, I think it'll just be a, a straight sail to the end of the season. Now I'm hoping for no more dramas. Fingers crossed. It's <laughs> nice knowing that they have that little bit of a cushion as well, I suppose. Yeah, I think the work we've done on the goal difference has been mm. amazing. Last time I was on the on the podcast, I said that we wouldn't catch uh, Liverpool on goal different for their goal difference. So we were nine behind. I couldn't see us outscoring Liverpool by nine in that in the nine game period, and we have. So, uh, well, there you go. What, <laughs> <laughs> you know what a triumph that's been, if nothing else. Yeah, Simon, how much of a challenge do West Ham pose? They been struggling a little bit lately, had their own disappointment in the Europa League semi-final, but they are pushing for European football, aren't they? Yeah, I I, I like West Ham um, as, a, as a team and a club, and I like what David Moyes has done with them. I think there was a debate on the radio the other week about, you know, when do we stop saying that West Ham are overachieving um, because they're producing consistently and have been for more than one one year, but then it still feels like they are going ahead. Um, I think you know the the Burt dream would probably be to um, to lose to West Ham so that West Ham get West Ham knock United into Europa Conference League, but City still win the title. Um, but West Ham do have have that to play for. Surprisingly, despite their poor form, by kind of just how bad United have been in. In recent weeks, so so there is something riding on um, on the game for West Ham, even if it is um, 
you know, still Thursday night versus Thursday night football. But it's also the last game of the season for them and they've had a terrific season and I'm sure the fans will, will make it a, a really good atmosphere um, and the City away fans are always brilliant. So it, it's going to be a, a a great atmosphere, I would I would like to think, but, um, but West Ham will certainly be giving it everything kind of on the pitch and in the stands. It just depends on how tired those West Ham legs are after you know, a really, really long season for them. Well, it is time to get some predictions. We're still on £1,340 raised on the charity bet so far this season. We're still just £10 short of our best ever season and we're running out of games to get that one win we need to get over the line. William Hill is giving each of the panel a £10 correct score single. The winnings are going to the guys at the Man City Fans Food Bank support. Adam, give us your prediction for the match against West Ham. Well, although I said we need to just outscore them, I do think we're going to have a heroic defensive performance from whoever we stick there, and we're going to win 2 0. 2 0 City win is currently 7 to 1, so that would return uh, £70. Fingers crossed for that one. Simon, what are you going for? <laughs> well, I must say I made this prediction before I realised there was sort of still something on the line as far as the charity bet went. But um, I just I just went for five one De Bruyne hat trick again. <laughs> Fingers crossed that that would be quite something, wouldn't it? We definitely wouldn't have to worry about goal difference then. Five one City win thirty five to one. That would return three hundred and fifty pounds. And Mooney has chipped in with a three one City win. So that is currently eleven to one, which would return. £110. Remember, you have to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on gambling responsibility, take a look at begambleaware.org. That is the end of this week's Blue Moon podcast. Thank you for listening. And thanks also to our wonderful guests, Adam Carter. Thank you. And Simon Ikovsky. Thank you very much. If you would like some more, you could join our Patreon. There are bonus shows every Monday throughout the season. This Monday was Chris Higginbottom's choices of the five games that made him. And here's a little sneak peek. It is noteworthy, though, that the first ever football match that I went to, um, my dad told me to that as well. And it was actually, um, I don't know if you've heard of them, Manchester um, United. I don't know if it's United. How do you, how do you <laughs> I don't know how that you one? say it. Yeah, I don't, no, I, it's, no. it's one of the, it's like Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's one of those, isn't it? Uh, these little known teams don't get that much uh, coverage, but it was those against AC Milan. The crowd was the. I mean, the people around me. I don't know. They just seemed a little bit arrogant, not particularly good humoured, annoying. Yeah. Natural fan experience. I wasn't that uh, taken with, and then. A couple of months later, went to to City against Shrewsbury, and it was just—I don't know—it was just a completely different experience. That there was some real comedy on the pitch, which, if you look at the highlights, the, the, it doesn't—it doesn't even lead to a goal, does it? But that scramble that uh, it leads to a corner in the first half, uh, where yeah. the, 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 I can't—I can't get through to the listeners just how much of a. <laughs> Of an incredible scramble it is. There's like there's there's a there's a moment where the goalkeeper lets it through his hands, but it's cleared off the line behind, but it's cleared onto his own defender and it's ricocheting back towards the goal. Honestly, go and watch it if, because it's if incredible. There a, if there was a waiter with no trousers on running through the six yard box with a tray in his hand and a live chicken <laughs> like barking on it, that would have not been out of place in that Malay 
in the penalty area. It was just mental. But that was one of the things I took from the game. It was like, this is absolutely crazy. Like, this is, you know, never seen anything like it. The crowd were all particularly uh, exuberant, sarcastic, funny, sardonic. It just, it was a completely different experience to the one I'd had at Old Trafford. And I just thought, yeah, this. This, this is, is the me. place for me. Yeah. And obviously, you know, if you sat next... I was in the North Stand for that, or we were. And if you're sitting next to somebody who's got um, a five-foot fried egg that they whip out uh, every time there's a goal for City next <laughs> to somebody who's got, like, a nine-foot-long inflatable Benson and Hedges. I mean, I don't know. It was just uh, something struck me with it. I just thought, yeah, I think... Uh, I think this is where I belong. That was a clip of this week's Patreon show. If you'd like to hear the full thing, it is available now. Just sign up for £2 a month at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. There's nearly a full season of bonus shows to catch up on too. So you'll have plenty to listen to there. We will be back to review the game with West Ham next week. But thank you very much for tuning in to this week's episode fingers crossed City can get the job done and then it's all on to the last game of the season against Aston Villa have a great week bye bye that was the Blue Moon Podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast